It is he, Kale Clinton, here to wish you a very belated but still very merry Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Kwanzaa slash Festivus, whatever you celebrate, we hope you had a great time. I know both of us did, and I know both of us still found the time to watch football, Kale. How was your football Christmas? Jackson, that's why they have the abbreviation for Happy Holidays. But it was a good football-watching experience. We're kind of in, uh, like, what I would consider the bye week built into the calendar, that kind of week between Christmas and New Year's that does not really count. No work really gets done by most. However, we're still on the clock. We're still watching ball. We're getting the reps in. And, man... I don't know how I feel about, like, the full slate of, like, double Saturday, Sunday. It's uh, it's not my fave, I'm going to admit. Because, listen, it's one thing to just have, like, the deluge of 10 hours of football, 1 to 11. But then to do it again in such a high concentration the next day with there only being, like, Technically, like one, maybe two good teams playing. Period. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I'll be honest. Uh, Saturday was definitely a big family day for me. Um, not like I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the games, but I wasn't watching with my usual rapt focus. And the games that I feel are important. I've gone back and either watched the condensed game of or I caught the important parts live. The game that I watched the most of was Dallas Philly, which I feel like was probably the only game on Saturday that really bears a lot of weight, uh, except maybe Minnesota Giants, which I went back and watched the CG. But yeah, it was it was a lot of action, but it wasn't a lot of meaningful action, I don't think. And then we get to Sunday and Miami loses to Green Bay and Tua throws picks on three straight drives in the fourth quarter, and that maybe felt like the most significant thing that happened all weekend until we realized that the 40-point beatdown at the hands of the 4-10 and Los Angeles Rams was finally the straw that broke the camel's back for the Denver Broncos. So let's start there, Kale. Nat Hackett fired. Russell Wilson's still very much hot employed by the team. We've got O-linemen fighting with backup quarterback Brett Rippon on the sidelines. We've got post-game scuffles between Rams and Broncos players as Baker Mayfield's getting interviewed on camera. Man, what a mess. And where do we even begin to start thinking about fixing these Denver Broncos? I I really couldn't tell you. Uh <laughs> I mean, it starts like it starts with the offense. CBS Sports noted that uh, the 22 touchdowns, I believe, is the third worst in Broncos history through 15 weeks. Uh, I don't know. It, it, It goes into like our evaluation process of a team like 
how we value like or how we evaluate a receiving core going into a league because I think uh Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy like have kind of reflected that like eh, like maybe they weren't of the best value going in. We really overvalued them. It's how much impact the defense can make on a given team because no matter how well the Denver Broncos defense played in most cases, it just didn't matter that like if the Broncos scored 18 points, that line sticks out uh, so often gets referenced a ton. But the biggest thing for me is just like a lack of like a lack of being able to get guys together. Uh, I don't know if Denver will ever admit that uh, the hack and hire was made in anticipation of trying to trade for Aaron Rodgers. I don't know if they'll ever admit that and that they kind of got stuck with him. But regardless, you got to be able to handle a room. And so often this season, we've seen stuff out of Denver where, like, active fights on sidelines, guys not getting along, like, really, really stupid penalties. Uh, you watch the fight at the end of a 40-point loss, and I get frustrations boil over, but, like, there's just a complete lack of control of this team. It's, you know, it's really gone to the wolves at some point where it's like, you've just, like... I don't know. You bring in a you bring in a guy who's never served as more than a special teams coordinator to come in and serve as the guy who's just going to run your clock. Uh, you have no control over a team. You like you have stretches where you bring in a guy for hundred fifty million dollars and he can't play the position of quarterback. You have no ability to adjust the offense to make him any better. Uh, like there's just a total. That's 245, 245 to be clear, not 150. Yeah, sorry. Well, it was, it was one, what was it, 150 guaranteed, I think? Yeah, I believe 150 fully guaranteed. Yeah. So there's like just at every conceivable level, Nathaniel Hackett failed as a head coach. He's also, I think, now one of four or five coaches since 1970 who is a less than one and done, who was hired as a first time head coach. And did not make it the full first season. It yeah. is shout out Urban Meyer. Rare air. Back to back years. We it is rare, rare, rare air to be in. And it wasn't just like Jackson, it wasn't just a full, you know, Urban Meyer blow up. You're not even going down the blaze of glory to make yourself historically significant. <laughs> and I suppose of I suppose like a 40 point drubbing to a four win Rams team is that kind of blaze of glory. But for the most part of the season, this was just a slow bleed out where you know the second you saw it, this was like this was a pretty much dead on arrival sort of thing. I think I think Stephen Ruiz retweeted a thing saying he's already on the hot seat the second he took the podium in January. Hmm. Uh, but this was just like and made a weird I, Matt Lafleur joke about how he was going to be the more handsome head coach. I just don't know a world where this was like a guy with no play calling experience hiring a staff and no play calling experience was ever going to manifest in a Super Bowl contending or playoff caliber or like division competitive team. I have no clue. At some point, at some point we just got to go back to our like evaluation metrics or like just how we assess teams in the preseason and just kind of say like, you know, this is who we thought that like, 
this wasn't who we thought they'd be, but at the end of the season, it looks so obvious. So, like, at some point, how do we look at a team and just say, yeah. like, this is who they're going to be? Yeah, I can't help but feel like the Hackett move was motivated by the desire to trade for Aaron Rodgers. And when that didn't materialize, they obviously hopped over to plan B with Russell Wilson. But those two paired together never meshed in any sort of way whatsoever. And obviously with Russell's contract being what it is, he's going to be the one that gets to stay. I don't don't know how they, I don't know quite how they recover though. Russell Wilson, another great stat that has been cropping back up in Twitter feeds today. Uh, 2019 Russell Wilson is first in PFF passer grade. He then drops to sixth the following season, 17th last year and this year, 28th. I don't know how you recover from that. It's not like you're going to get like a backup to 17th at this point would be a win, but we're talking about this guy as, you know, the greatest player to never get an MVP vote two, three seasons ago. And now you're just hoping that he can be somewhat serviceable. He's on the second highest paid contract in football outside Deshaun Watson. And simultaneously, Jackson, you said that he's going to be the one to stay. He might not. Uh, Craig Rosenthal had pointed out that the Broncos don't have to keep Wilson. And I did some digging. The contract works in such a way where most of the guaranteed money comes in yearly prorated installments instead of a lump sum. So it's not one massive cap hit this year. And while the prorated bonuses are part of the guaranteed money, it doesn't factor into guaranteed salary. So if you do a post-June 1 designation for cutting on Russell Wilson, you take a dead cap hit of $17 million in 2023 and just have some, like, you have dead money paid out you only pay like 30 plus mil in dead money, 2023, 2024. It gets much more reasonable from 2025 through 2028, which is how long this contract runs, which seems like a lot, but you get to avoid four years of paying Russell Wilson 50 mil a year. If you want to try and take the re-up where like, all right, we'll get a guy completely dedicated to Russ and we're going to build a team around Russ. We're going to build an offense around Russ. And we're going to work with this contract. You still have an out after 2024. But at this point, while you'll probably take that out anyway, like why, why not cut bait now? I'll give you two reasons. Uh, one is that uh, general manager George Payton is apparently staying on board organization expressed its confidence in him and he is obviously the the architect behind the russell wilson trade so to admit defeat on that after one year is while maybe the smart play uh not the play made by powerful rich men who want to act like they've been doing a good job at their high paid powerful jobs uh and two who are you going to replace him with broncos don't have a first round pick this year uh Nothing particularly exciting in-house and not like you're going to make a big splash in the free agent or trade market. Certainly not trade. 
um, you know, what's the plan if you cut Russell Wilson? You don't have one. Uh, contraire on two facts. Uh, the Athletic reported that Wall Hackett or uh, Wall Payton will be involved with the head coaching uh, hiring cycle. They did also add that Peyton's job will continue to be evaluated, which I find is like an interesting wrinkle because usually the best method for success is wanting to have a marriage between GM and head coach. And it's so weird that you'd have your former GM technically maybe on the hot seat, but still somewhat involved in getting the next guy. So while the reporting's interesting, I don't fully buy it. But Denver does have a first-round pick, Jensen. They get it from San Francisco. They have a twenty. They currently have a twenty-six overall pick, which still, you know, yeah, it's an Anthony. It's an Anthony Richardson. It's I don't think rare on the guys there. I don't see it. Could anyway. Listen, you're not getting. You're not going to get Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, but with the way this quarterback market. Looks like it's opening up. There's probably good fill-in options. And on top of that, we've seen really good replacement-level quarterback play from first-year fill-ins in Jacoby Brissett. Most of the Carolina Panthers staff outside of Baker Mayfield and, of course, Geno Smith. Like, it's not good, but the way we've seen the NFL work this year, running football is coming back. You've seen better replacement out of or seen better performance out of replacement level quarterbacks. There's not a bad like there's a not a bad out or a pretty good excuse with not too bad of repercussions for Denver to just cut bait now. And on top of that, there's probably more issues than just quarterback to fix on top of offensive line, getting some better tight ends in there reassessing what you have at wide receiver. They could go this route, just tank for a year under new ownership and try and build something out right better. I know this defense is good, but you could see what you have. So you're going to go go out and find like a George Fant or Noah Fant type on, uh, on the market there. It seems interesting to me. I'd, yeah. I'd, maybe, I'd see like a Noah have Fant. Like, maybe see if you can get a guy like a, I don't know, like a Drew Locke in there to kind of do some replacement level quarterbacking. I was going to say Geno like Smith. I was going to say Geno Smith. That's even better, honestly. You should bring in Geno Smith and let Russ be his backup. That would be a fun little role reverse. Just really, know. really. Oh, yeah, that that's the one that really makes sense. Because you still keep Russell Wilson's $50 million <laughs> yeah. contract. Yeah. And you just actively, act pretty much cucking out of the quarterback. I position. think so. I think so. I To me, all this is like smart football guy talk like figuring out a solution that would probably make sense but i don't i don't feel the smoke with it i i don't think russ is going anywhere that's just my sort of spidey sense about this whole situation is you can't punt on this gigantic five-year commitment after one year and still save face not that they shouldn't but i don't think it's going to happen that's just my two cents on it i get it it's Walmart money though. Like they're like it's 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 funny money. 
the the amount you, that it'll I, cost. But are you saying you think it's going to happen, or are you just saying you think it should? Because I'm not arguing with your point that it would make sense, but I, I don't see it happening. I can't speak to it like, you know, I, there's no reporting I have that says, like, yeah, it's going to happen. I We're, we're guessers. Kayla. We're in the conjecture business. I know we're in the conjecture business, but I'm not going to make, like, outright determinative statements. I will say, though, Given how poor this performance has been, I see a world where they just do hard reset. And it's just like, well, we like we thought this would be a new regime. We thought we'd go in line with the last three years-ish of saying, like, you know, veteran guys on new teams can win Super Bowls. We thought that could be us. It's not. We failed in a historic way. Let's just, instead of trying to make it work, let's just cut bait entirely. I almost think that cutting bait and, thing, you know, releasing him with a post-June 1 designation to, like, do the smart cap thing would actually look better long-term than them trying to build this out for two years. Yeah, I mean, I I, I still won't argue with the point that it might be smarter. I, I do see it. Just in my mind even with the Walmart money, even with the new ownership, I think this, this organization made such a strong decision to move in the direction of we're a quarterback away. Let's mortgage future assets. Let's buy the farm and and let's get Russell Wilson. And I think that because of how much of a disaster Nathaniel Hackett was, he will be enough of a scapegoat to get them to try and hire somebody to fix Russell Wilson instead of cutting bait and doing a hard reset. That's just my, that's my gut feeling on all this. Not that, you know, Greg doesn't have a great point and you as well, but I'm not seeing it. We can, we can certainly keep receipts on this and come back to it mid off season. It'll be a great off season pod topic when we're hurting, but I'm not saying I see, you know what I do see Cal. I see a lot of teams that are extremely mediocre across the league landscape. In fact, I see nine that are at the exact record of seven and eight. And I just want to do a little digging here. I would like for us to take these nine, seven, and eight teams. New England, the Jets, Pittsburgh, Jacksonville, Tennessee, Detroit, Green Bay, Tampa, and Seattle, we don't have to rank all nine in order, but give me your top three out of those nine and why. You, you see, Jackson, I have ranked them in order. You ranked them in order? All right. Well, yeah. let's do it then. What's number nine? I have nine as New England. Oh. I have nine as New England. Uh, it is It is truly such – like so I kind of did it in tiers – my bottom most tier is just letdown. And I have New England at the bottom of letdown. Huh. Followed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Tennessee Titans. Interesting. See, I wouldn't put I wouldn't necessarily put the letdown teams at the bottom though. You know, like they're big disappointments, but does that mean that they're actively worse than my number 9 team which is Pittsburgh? You see, I think so, given Tampa Bay and Tennessee's relative level of competition. 
And I also think New England is just the worst team on this list because of pure, pure incompetence. Like not only like not oh, incompetent offense, like bad offense is one thing, but like messy penalties and like undisciplined play in all three stages of the game is just an indicator of a really poor team. And I think Tennessee and Tampa Bay with the records that they have given their level of competition and given prior years of performance are worse than the current Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Steelers. I know Pittsburgh was a wild card playoff team last year, but like that doesn't translate over because of, you know, year over year transition at like the quarterback position, the line or the uh, wide receiver position, the turnover they've had in their secondary like them missing TJ Watt for a while. Like I think Pittsburgh in the last few weeks, just kind of anecdotally and given relative competition has a better caliber seven and eight record than the Titans and Buccaneers. do. Yeah. I mean, I'm putting the Titans towards the bottom as well. I can't quit the Buccaneers fully. I hate them. They stink. But every, and the, time, every time they've been down 10 points in a fourth quarter, they've come back and won. So I don't know what to do with that. I know, but they're oh, also boy. coming back. Like, their defense is allowing 16 points, and their offense is struggling to cover those 16 points. I agree. And they just lost two more offensive line, one for the year, one for an extended period. When you they lose stink. Tristan Wirfs, you're going down. They stink. Pittsburgh, though has a minus 55-point differential, which is not only the worst out of all the seven and eight teams, it's worse than the L.A. Rams and the Atlanta Falcons. I'm just going to put Pittsburgh at the bottom. I hope I hope you can see why. You know why I'm not? At some point, head-to-head comes into it, and the Pittsburgh Steelers beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So they lost to the Patriots. Yeah, but the Patriots have a special place in hell of a season. <laughs> I'm not even going to put the Patriots at eight either. This is frustrating. I I don't like this Patriots team one bit either. But the five-game losing streak Titans factoring in that Malik Willis is their quarterback the rest of the way have to be number eight for me. There's just no possible way that you you can watch what Malik Willis has done in the two-plus games where he's played significant time and tell me that that guy deserves to be ahead of the New England Patriots. They're just abysmal with him yeah i'm using full season as the landscape here and even in that like i don't know malik willis has you know escape artist madden x factor turned on for some reason as a what would be like a 62 overall madden player uh i don't know there's some things about his game i can i can appreciate uh really really knows how to escape pressure like an absolute beast Uh, The running game has been kind of impressive. There are just moments where, like, I always go back to, like, the backyard football thing because that feels like like this era of quarterback. But his ability to evade pressure and, like, still get throws off or, like, escape sacks is is really impressive to me. And if the minor – not minor, but, like, the baseline offense stuff, the baseline passing offense, if, like – he can implement a short game and an intermediate game. Then, like, I'm willing to see him as a quarterback prospect. Yeah, he's totally raw right now. He was not meant to see time at all this year. I completely get that. But, like, what I see, like, 
he's frisky to me. And I think just in general, like the tit- like the Titans all season has been a letdown. But it's like I'm not putting that on start like start by consequence or start by force Malik Willis. You know what I mean? I just I I have some Malik Willis anecdotes and stats for you, Kale, to not to refute some of the positives that you see in his game, but do you realize that in Malik Willis's three starts, his high for net passing yards, aka passing yards minus sack yards, is 88. He is yet, and he's yet to throw for 100 in a single game. 99 against Houston was his career high. His QBR, 12. <laughs> he's got 276 career passing yards. He's got three starts plus four other games where he's thrown at least four passes this year. He's got no touchdowns. He's got three interceptions. He did get his first touchdown in rushing form against the Titans this week. So congrats to him for that. And he's got two fumbles lost. I'm just going to say, I think he's, he, he, he belongs in the eighth spot on this list. You know what is surprising though? Amid all that, According to football outsiders, Tom, Tom Strachan, Tom Strachan, wish I knew how to pronounce his name. I apologize, Tom. <laughs> his handle but, is T Strack, so it makes me wonder. Strachan, Tom Strachan. I'll say Tom Strachan. But according to Tom, in those three games that Malik Willis has started, finishes QB twenty one, QB twenty five, and QB twenty one in just fantasy output from those three given weeks. Which, in the grand scheme of things, like, yeah, bottom third of the league. But when you look at, like, the total passing numbers and the turnovers, it's, like, not as bad as, I like, being top end of bottom third is, like, pretty impressive to me, given how little his usage has been top and the fact that he's, like, third. barely be Listen, dude, he's not Zach Wilson. Like, I'll just say that. He's not Zach Wilson, and I'm okay with that. Yikes. He's not the worst quarterback in football in a given week that he starts. This That's fine. This ain't the Liberty Flames anymore, pal. And by the way, he, we we watched him lose for the Liberty Flames in a game that they barely put up any total yards in the first half against the vaunted 2021 Syracuse defense. Uh, but hey, shout out. That, you know what that goes to? That goes to my gripe about fantasy football just being built for rushing quarterbacks. Like everyone – Everyone thought that Justin Fields was suddenly an elite tier quarterback because he was putting up 35 fantasy points every week. And I was like, he's good. He's improving a lot, but he's definitely still got a lot of work to do. He's turning the ball over in crucial spots and they haven't won any of these games. Perhaps you've noticed. Uh, and then in Jalen the Hurts last week in that game where possible scenario that they didn't win games in those situations. Yeah. Well, it Jalen Hurts been better that they didn't. Yeah, it was. It did work out better for them, but you'd like to see him win sometimes. And then last week, Jalen Hurts throws the two picks against Chicago early on and looks terrible, and then ends the game with three rushing touchdowns and ends the week as QB1 yet again and wins everybody their first-round fantasy playoff matchup. And it's like, oh, Jalen Hurts is MVP. I'm like, did anybody watch the game? Like, he didn't look very good. So that's, that's my gripe of fantasy football is it just rewards rushing yards and rushing touchdowns way too much for quarterbacks. I mean, the rushing touchdowns are the same as the passing touchdowns. Not I just see it. 
Oh, that's standard fantasy scoring. That sounds like a year league problem. Standard <laughs> fantasy. Well, I mean, that's just standard fantasy scoring. Like the default option is six for a rushing touchdown, four for a passing. Fair enough. I still just don't think that like the turnovers matter that much if you're passing at a certain volume and like you're able to make those big like if your big plays mitigate your turnovers, I think it's a net zero. Uh, in terms of like the impact, I don't see like early interceptions followed by three rushing touchdowns. Is like he didn't play that great, but like redeemed himself at the end. Just like it's it's a matter of opportunities and volume. Like if you're consistently throwing turnovers, you have a high turnover rate. One thing he redeemed himself, but he wasn't clearly and far and away the best quarterback on the field last week. But if you just follow football in a fantasy sense, you're like, oh, Jalen Hurts, winner of the week once again. I'll give that to you. Jackson, Thirty-six. Points. we've only talked about three teams in 20 minutes. Let's keep this train moving. Yeah, number, like seven, to- number seven for me is uh, the Jets because they don't okay. have a quarterback right now. Uh, if Mike White gets healthy and looks good again, I'm, I reserve the right to bump them up, but I'm still putting the Jets at seven. And then I'll do the Bucks and Pats. They're right in the middle for me. I'll go Pats six, Bucks five. So I have a full tier of happy to be here, uh, which is just teams that have overachieved and that whether or not they make the playoffs, I don't see them making any noise. And that in order goes number six, Pittsburgh, number five, Seattle, number four, Detroit, number three, New York. We'll stick with New York because you had mentioned them first. I have them higher because I actually value I actually value white in that mix. Uh like way more. I think the emergence of Zonovan Knight, I think like they've redeemed their run game a little bit uh since losing Brees Hall. They found some good assets. I think Mike White is enough to like actually make them semi-competitive just because of how good that defense is. And I get your hangups, but it just seems like Mike White is kind of competent at quarterback and can do enough. He hasn't played against many top-end passing defenses. Uh, but I still think he has a really aggressive Jets playbook, and the Jets playbook on its own is really good for producing like really highly efficient passing offenses and given the weapons, I think it just works. I put them over the lions and Seahawks because both of them in recent weeks have kind of been a bit of letdowns. Seahawks defense has really exposed them a good amount since they haven't been able to really produce on offense. It's mostly, been left up to their defense, and their defense hasn't really been able to hold teams at all. And the Lions had a really good opportunity to kind of jettison themselves into that seven seed and just weren't able to against the Carolina team that we will get to. But just a like historic level of letdown by the Detroit Lions. So while I think I was originally really high and think thought that they would actually be able to maybe pull an upset, in the wild card round of the playoffs, I now put them below the Jets because I just think their last few weeks of close losses and tough L's have kind of just been, or close wins and tough losses have kind of just been enough to deflate the bubble on me for Detroit. 
Yeah, this is a tough week for them. I have a little more confidence in Detroit. And not even that confidence is like the operative term here, but they've mostly been playing better than all these other teams. They have better vibes than all these other teams. Certainly better vibes. They have more of an identity than most of these other teams, I think. Uh, The Carolina game kind of throws a wrench in that, but maybe we just got to give credit to Carolina's O-line and run game at some point. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not fully out on them yet. I've got them a bit higher. But I'm going to toss Seattle back down in that last tier that I had. I kind of forgot about them. So I'm going to go. Yeah. Going to toss them just above New England, barely, mostly out of spite for the Patriots and how bad they've played the past few weeks. So New England six, Seattle five, Tampa four, because they beat Seattle pretty handily in the Germany game. And then number three, I'm going to go Jacksonville because I just believe in Trevor Lawrence at this point. These, these top three teams, I kind of believe in all of them, at least in the fact that they're they're playing better football than the rest, and they've got some pieces that I like. Uh, Jacksonville, not sure whether to buy the three-point performance in the rain against Zach Wilson and the rest of the Jets' tepid offense, but at least the defense has shown some signs of improvement. Uh, and also, if we just go by a point differential, which is – not the best stat but certainly a stat that tells you whether or not a team is in these games that they're losing or winning comfortably they're plus 22 which is i believe only behind new england in this tier of teams who are seven and eight so gotta throw jacksonville up in the three spot jackson i'm gonna save my jacksonville talk uh because you could probably guess where they are by me saving it if it's higher than your three slot apparently uh, where do you have Green Bay? Because I have them in the second tier of could make some noise could. if they make it uh, if they make it to the postseason. Because I'm very surprised with where this Green Bay team has kind of been. Yeah, I'm talking about Aaron shots earlier today, like the rushing attack has kind of always been good. And we're finally getting some really good performances out of this defense. What's surprising is by numbers, like the passing attacks kind of always been league average, which is while down for a Green Bay team in general, it's it's like still okay because the rest of the league is down. But this is like it's they're finally looking like the team that we thought they'd be. Like okay passing attack. A reliant run game and a good defense. I think last night's game against the Miami Dolphins or yesterday's game against the Miami Dolphins was a big motivator in me jumping them up into this tier. Because now I think there's like a real strategy there and there's a lot of competence in this uh, defense. Yeah, I wanted to put Dan Campbell's Lions first, but just because – the other one is quarterbacked by Aaron Rodgers, who granted has not been Aaron Rodgers at any point this year. I still think some Aaron Rodgersy type things are in there. Uh, this is also contingent on having a healthy Christian Watson, who status uncertain coming out of yesterday's game. Uh, Aaron Jones also has a rolled angle, which yeah, makes it a little But everyone's tougher. banged up at this point. Um including like just as we were hitting the record button, the reports trickle out that two was back in the concussion protocol, which we, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll have lots of thoughts on for the news show on Wednesday, but tough scene. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to put Green Bay at one just because the run game, uh, 
the veteran leadership uh and i would be most scared to play them if i were say like the niners in the first round of the playoffs yeah i feel you there i just think it's tougher green bay not having the advantage of lambo probably at any point if i get in which is why i have jackson top of this list i think the added benefit of if they get in, they have to be the four seed and they have to get a home game is a genuine benefit because I'm just as high as you on what I've seen out of Jacksonville in the last few weeks. But it's just that added benefit of a guaranteed home game pushes it over the top for me. It's fair. Baltimore would be an interesting first-round matchup for them, obviously, because they already beat them in Jacksonville. So just be round two of that. Feasibly, you'd have a healthy Lamar, but... Jags might still be the pick there. I don't know. I'd be more scared of the Chargers or even the Dolphins if I were the Jags. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. I Listen, they've got wins against two of those three teams already. They beat the Chargers early in the season. They've already beaten the Ravens. My, and, you know, all of a sudden if Miami sneaks in, but two is for some reason unable to play with Miami winning, that would be, Really interesting. I think the Jets would also be an interesting game because I think they would slide in if they beat Miami and can win out. Well, look, Tua should not play this week. Like, let's just go uh, yeah. no, He should not his, be on a football his, field this week. His status is already ruled in doubt. Uh, I don't think he'll play considering this is his third concussion in three months. Uh, what I was just going to say about Jacksonville before we jump on that is that it gets a little tough with the fact that you know, Dwayne Smoot is now out. Cam Robinson is going to miss time. When you have both of those big pieces missing from your all, your defense and your offense, respectively, gets a little bit dicier. But like we said, kind of everyone is getting banged up at this point. And I just wrote up the injury aftermath of week 16. And if you didn't have uh, out for the season next to your name, you're probably in good shape. And Jacksonville – didn't have many of those, so I think they're safe as my top seed of actual shot at winning a playoff game. <laughs> at winning a playoff game is an interesting way to phrase it because if you're if you're asking who can most likely win one, I think I agree with Jacksonville. But if you're making the leap to who do you think can win two, I'm probably going to Green Bay. But yeah. either way, I think it makes it makes sense to have either one of those two teams at the top because it's like pedigree and blue chippers and veteran leadership for one and the other you know up and coming young superstar in the making maybe he can just you know find it a little early this season and show us what's to come so good first two picks that's a transition though because maybe one of these teams is your answer to our final question at the top of the show which is kill we've kind of established a top tier right we know Kansas City, Buffalo, Cincinnati, they're in that top tier. We for sure know Philly and San Francisco are in that top tier. And you know what? 11-4, and just beat Philly, granted backup quarterback, but I'll throw Dallas up there as well. They're number six, but they're they're in the top six. Who's left? Who do you think can make any sort of realistic playoff run outside those top six teams? Or are we just looking at the only teams that have any sort of threat to do it all this year? It's tough because we're in this weird period of like hyper parity where the way records work, 
I think we're now at 16 teams around the NFL have records between eight and six wins. And there's only so many teams that have eclipsed 10 wins. I I mean, the list is really few. It's just Baltimore, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Buffalo, Philadelphia, Minnesota, San Francisco, Dallas. And even if you take those eight teams out of the mix, like there's not a ton of teams I'm crazy, crazy confident in. If I had to pick one of those teams, it's probably the Chargers. Just because it had like they have the explosives. Uh they have TNT. They have yeah. They are <laughs> armed with weapons. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I like elite quarterback playing Herbert. Uh when performing at top level. Two really good receiving options in Mike Williams and Keenan Allen. You have uh, what I would honestly consider an all-pro running back in Austin Eckler, although he probably won't get it because they're probably going to favor more rush-heavy backs than dual-threat backs. But uh, Austin Eckler is currently playing a season that only uh, four uh, other running backs have seen by volume. Uh, It's 100 reception, 100 uh, rushing attempts game. It's up there with Forte, LT, and Chris McCaffrey twice. Uh, they're also getting really healthy at the right time, unlike other teams. Well, they're not very healthy on the offensive line. They're still getting Joey Bosa and Derwin James back at some point, which is a massive, massive quality add for them. And this is like in addition to the emergence of guys like Kyle Van Noy and Khalil Mack, who really kind of played situationally out of their minds in the last few games, getting a little bit better in the secondary. We saw them actually shut down a Miami Dolphins offense that we thought was top five in the league coming into that matchup. They've played two really good games, three really good games in the last few weeks. I just think they're coming on at the right time to do some damage. I see it. I see the vision. The only thing that worries me about the Chargers is that it's so frustrating to watch the Chargers play football. It's literally just duct taped together with Justin Herbert and a bunch of horse glue. But they win that Miami game. They play a ghastly model of football against Tennessee, but Herbert makes the throw at the end and the outcome just W on the scoreboard. But uh yeah, if you even look at Justin, like Justin Herbert's stat page is in no way indicative of how Justin Herbert's played this year. And neither, frankly, are any of his efficiency metrics, his EPA, his DVOA, et cetera. They're all bad because he's just being asked to make five-yard pass after five-yard pass to somehow get the chains to continue to move. It's really excruciating to watch that team play, but they still have that guy. So even if they do it, in a super inefficient, unsexy type of way, I agree. Like, that's the team I'm more scared of than, I mean, goodness knows what Miami is right now. I I would prefer to see two and not throw another pass the rest of the season, but that's just because I value, you know, human life and health and things of that nature. Uh, and nobody below them in the AFC scares me. Baltimore doesn't have a single wide receiver on their roster, so they don't scare me. Uh, and I don't think Kirk Cousins is going to win a Super Bowl. So, yeah. Chargers all the way. 
Yeah, it's there's some part of me that just thinks that Joe Lombardi's just like, oh yeah, we've been doing this for eighteen, like fifteen, sixteen weeks. Now that we're in the playoffs. Here's the actual like he's got to do some like no act you know, it's, it's we're in the playoffs. Brian Johnson's killing reveal of an offense that he's just gonna like you know now that we're pulling out the stops. We can run like the real offense. I disagree. I think, it's, I think it's Joe Lombardi gets to the playoffs and says, should I change it up? Nah, we got to the playoffs. I'm sticking with what got us here. Yeah, he's – listen, Herbert is sixth in the NFL in passing yards, doing it on 6.7 yards per attempt. And he'll be the higher than that because they still, they still haven't played their game yet this week, so he'll jump a few guys. I know, and he's only behind. He's he actually, if he has a two hundred yard game, he'll jump to third in the league. Yep. And only, only currently, only Tom Brady is ahead of him with four thousand one hundred seventy eight yards, and he's somehow doing it on six point two yards per attempt. <laughs> oh, Ugly stuff, Kale. Talk about a letdown. Talk about a letdown in my offense. Yeah. On that lovely note, uh, I'm going to just get us into game balls. Maybe a little bit of a rapid fire game balls this week. I've got George Kittle for offense because we talked about this on another platform. I think it was the takeaway a couple weeks ago, but Debo said maybe it was the new show. Debo Samuel goes down. And we say, who's going to step up in this Niners offense besides Christian McCaffrey continuing to shoulder more of the workload? And I said, you've got this guy, George Kittle, who's an all-pro tight end. Maybe start throwing him the ball. It appears that Kyle yeah, what's Shanahan, he doing? It appears that he's taking the message, and I love him for it. Because let me read you George Kittle's stat line from this past week. Six catches, 120 yards, two touchdowns. Second straight week, by the way, that George Kittle has over 100 yards and two touchdowns. Maybe, just maybe, he should have been more involved in the passing game all along. That's all I've got to say. You got to look again to see just how many of those, like those, both those touchdown passes were on like, it was like gains of at least 30, right? Like they were massive, massive gains. He's doing that thing again where nobody can bring him down, and he's always been capable of it, but this entire year he was a decoy in this offense, and I I kept waiting for the week when he was going to break out, and I even tried to predict it once or twice, and it uh, ruined me in the Football Outsider staff picks when I said George Kittle would go off against the Arizona Cardinals, and he was like the only 49er that didn't. But, hey, finally it's happening, and it's great because he's always been this good. It, it's really cool to see Shanahan. Like, Shanahan's offense is so reliant on just getting guys open. And while it's mostly reserved for the speed guys or, like, the crazy athletic guys like Christian McCaffrey or the speed guys like Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, it's crazy to see him do it with the big body of George Kittle because it's just, like, it's just a freight train. Like, like yeah. it's just still explosive. It's, still explosive getting in his own way. It's you're just getting a full head of steam out of a guy that also weighs like 225, 230 pounds. Absolutely. Yeah, I love Way watching him run through the secondary because Gronk always did it 
in a way that was like, you know, he'd have bodies hanging off him and he'd just keep kind of, you know, taking these big long strides and a lot of shoulder movement, whatever. George Kittle, yeah, he just looks like he's angry the entire time. He's he's it's he's a smooth wicker steps. Freight train is the word I would use to describe it. Jackson, my game ball is getting split square down the middle. It's getting a little 50-50 action. I am going half my game ball is going to Deontay Foreman, and half of my game ball is going to Chuba Hubbard because the Carolina Panthers. Gave Dan Campbell a taste of his own medicine. The kneecap biting days are over. Talk about a freight train. Because the Carolina Panthers just rolled right through. I'm I'm straight up just going to read the article from Panthers.com on the historic day. Panthers totaled a franchise record 570 net yards. That, tied a, uh, that beat a previous franchise high of 548 set in 2017. On the ground, though, a new single-game rushing record in the NFL set by the Panthers, 320 yards with seven rushes of at least 20 yards. That beats a previous record of 299 set by Tampa Bay in 08. They also set a franchise record for first-half yard uh, rushing yards, 240 rushing yards, 364 net yards, topping both marks that had stood in 2009-2015, respectively. Let's get back to the main two. Running backs Deontay Foreman and Chua Hubbard both topped 100 rushing yards in the first half, the first time that's happened in the NFL since Fred Taylor and Maurice Jones-Drew did it for Jacksonville against Indianapolis in 2006. Foreman and Hubbard are the first Panther running backs to each run for 100 in the first half, it's the first time the Panthers have had multiple 100-yard rushers in the game since D'Angelo Williams and Jonathan Stewart in 2009. I mean, impressive. Carolina rushed at least 42 times in each of its four wins since Week 10, ranking second in the NFL with 215 rushing attempts in that span. They also had two consecutive touchdown drives of at least 90 yards. Just, I mean, Jackson, this team tore through Detroit Lions. It also helps that both of those 90-plus yard touchdown drives both end in rushing touchdowns to kind of encapsulate the just pure dominance Carolina was on. One by Sam Darnold, one by Deontay Foreman. Just a dominant, dominant game on the ground against a Detroit Lions team that was like, that was the one thing kind of keeping them afloat coming into this game. They We knew that this Detroit Lions team had a really, really poor rush defense. But this was kind of supposed to be their bread and butter. I mean, like, they've got guys like Aline McNeil, they shut down Saquon Barkley against the Giants. They kind of done a good job just relatively containing teams. And coming into this game, their defensive DVOA, like the rushing part was negative. They had a negative 4.6 rushing DVOA. That was supposed to be their strength. Carolina blew them out of the water. 
Good stuff, man. I'm going to tell you, I don't tell people how to do their game balls, but if you're going to split it two ways, you might as well split it five because I'm here to tell you that my offensive game ball, if I were giving it to the Panthers, would be Icky Iquanu, Brady Christensen, Bradley Bozeman, Austin Corbett, and Taylor Moten. Not just because they enabled that 320-yard rushing attack, because Deontay Foreman says after the game that those guys came into a meeting on Friday wearing black ski masks, and that's apparently when he knew they meant business, and they took care of business. Black ski mask mentality. Winners. Also kept Sam Darwin clean, which huge. Huge for them. Maybe, listen, I, I don't want to split it seven ways, Jackson. <laughs> I tied it into the hunt. I tied it into the hundred yards rushing from two different players in the first half. It works. I'll keep it there for the history. But note the honorary trenches game ball goes to the Carolina Panthers offensive line. My defensive game ball is going to one of the all-time confusing sports names. Fourth-round rookie, L.A. Rams cornerback, Kobe Durant. Two interceptions. One of Russell Wilson to really set the tone early in the game, really let Russ know that this was going to be an awful day. It was quickly followed on the team's next possession by an interception that was narrated by the likes of Noah Eagle and one Patrick Starr. And then... uh, Kobe Durant ends up getting a second interception against Brett Rippon, but he returns it for a touchdown. So you've kind of got to take note there. I think it was a 90-plus yard touchdown as well. Uh, so is that, I can't give is, my game ball to Patrick Starr. I'm going to give it to Kobe Durant. Is that the one clip of Patrick Starr saying, like, that's not what Russ was trying to talk? <laughs> yep. Oh, my God, that rolls. Oh, uh, no, teammate. Oh, no. First first Nickelodeon game I haven't watched since they yeah. uh, unveiled it. I felt bad it. for not watching it, too, but, you know. Christmas I'm better for it. Up. I'm better for it. <laughs> you want please. My game ball goes to Texan safety Jalen Petre. Listen. There are not many opportunities. There, we get a lot of opportunities to give some game-winning walk-off turnovers. But not often do those walk-off turnovers to seal victories result in the snapping of a nine-game losing streak by the Houston Texans. They take down division rival Tennessee. They put Jacksonville in the catbird seat which I've really adopted from you as a term, Jackson. It is is catchy. Uh, But, listen, it could have also gone to Christian Harris for picking Malik Willis off the drive prior. Texans actually generate three different turnovers on the Titans' last four drives, uh, including a three and out which is in the one drive that wasn't a direct turnover. And that's basically a turnover. That's basically a turnover. So I'm not – listen, I'm not giving a 11-way split Houston Texans game ball. I'm just going to give it to Petre. Hats off to him. One of your best preseason call-outs, Kale, of players that you were excited about that nobody else knew the name of, Jalen Petrie. 
Yeah, I, I got to give some credit uh, on this show to another show, uh, the New Heights podcast, which has been both of our uh, Instagram reels slash YouTube shorts uh, binge mode for the past few weeks. Uh, Travis Kelsey gave the Texans a ton of credit after playing against them last week and said, you know, not a good record, but those guys play hard. Uh, and he wouldn't be surprised if they got a win one of these next couple weeks and got it done. I'll be in against Malik Willis, but Texans got it done. You know who else got it done, Kale? Greg who Joseph. else got it done, Jackson? Greg mm. Joseph, 61-yard mm. walk-off field goal. Uh, what else do you say? That's A Minnesota Vikings kicker is not supposed to do that. That's supposed to be the type of thing that goes against the Minnesota Vikings at the end of a game, or he's supposed to miss it from 31. That's how it's supposed to go, but – the narrative switch up for the Vikings this year in back-to-back weeks, winning on a 33 point comeback and then a 61 yard walk-off field goal. It makes me concerned a little bit because it does feel like we're in the upside down world, but I'm still really confident that their season's going to end in some sort of horrific fashion. So I'm just kind of biding my time till that, but congrats to Greg Joseph this week. It was a career long form by like seven yards, right? I don't know how, by how much, but confirmed career long. Not too shabby. Do you try it if you're losing? Probably, but it's certainly helped that it was a tie game, so the risk reward Definitely. factor was a lot lower. Certainly, certainly helped that it was a tie game. My special teams game ball going to Tommy Townsend, hmm. Hunter, Kansas City Chiefs. Listen. Not a lot of special teams game balls to work with in a week like this. So I'm going Townsend. Six punts, 246 yards. Three of those punts get pinned inside the 20-yard line. And this is a game, mind you, that's pretty much 7 nothing through most of the first half. It didn't feel like this game was totally out of reach. And then all of a sudden, Tommy Townsend gets the leg out. Pins the Seattle Seahawks inside the 20-yard line on one drive. They go three and out. Tennessee or uh, Kansas City can't really get going again. Townsend punts again. Pins Tennessee inside the 20-yard line again. Seattle goes another three and out. Kansas City turns that drive, short field, into a touchdown. The next one of the game, Kansas City goes down and scores again. It was a really impressive day. In a game that felt way too close for the Chiefs' comfort, Townsend was a difference maker. Just setting up, pinning them back, setting up short fields for Kansas City, and ipso facto in a kind of roundabout way, Townsend helped put points on the board. Took a lot of those seven-eighths to help get it done, as we say. Special teams is one-eighth of the DVOA pie. But Townsend's eighth kind of by – God, what is that – what is that uh, transitive? By transitive property, Tommy Townsend helped that Kansas City offense get some short fields. 
Hey, I'm impressed with your command of the English language there. That was that was a good way to pull it back in. Uh, we'll come back to that game very soon uh, in, a, in a much different way. But Kansas City gets it done once again. Cold weather game. Ball definitely hurts hitting your foot. It was a cold weather week, Kale. And in a cold weather week comes, I think, a different type of archetype for what a good uniform game is going to look like on an NFL field. So with all these cold weather games, I think that throws a wrench in some stuff. Uh, Saints-Browns was kind of a weirdly good-looking game for me that I'll just shout out that didn't win the award. Um, But it was one of those things where I didn't think gold would look good in the snow, but it did. Uh, My winner is just an obvious one to me. It's Raiders-Steelers because, I mean, shout out to the Steelers. They go block numbers. It's Franco Harris night. And it just felt like it was 1972 all over again. And that was the right way to like honor a Franco Harris. Now, do I think that players are like physically feeling the effects of Franco Harris and and that's what motivates them to the second half comeback? No, probably not because they couldn't feel their fingers, but for history's sake, it works. It's also literally the exact same uniform matchup from the Immaculate Reception, which rules like head to toe, both teams wearing the exact same garb. So in that sense, it feels wholly appropriate. And they're just two of my top four uniform teams year in and year out as well. So how could I not go with this game? But uh, yeah, I mean, most of this is Franco Harris love. Rest in peace. Yeah, I didn't even notice that the like until you pointed it out that the Steelers had the block numbers. Uh yeah, listen, it's objectively a great uniform game. <clears throat> the vibe I got though, I think you just articulated it well because it's I've seen it so many times in the Immaculate Reception highlights. This felt like a uniform game from the 1970s. This felt like it needed an NFL film soundtrack, or it needed like the autumn wind is a pirate playing over it, like it just needed like it, it was that and that's why i was like ah, like it almost feels boring to pick that because it was so good and but it felt so textbook in a way and that's just because it's like yeah it's it's two historically significant nfl teams playing together well we uh, need textbook well, sometimes though because we get like a we get a falcons ravens game which is like red on purple and feels like a something out of tcu's darkest nightmare uh it's you a big get like game, a, yeah. a weird uh, bills bears was one of the worst of the week for me and i i complimented the bears last week but somehow like navy versus royal blue and orange versus red stripes was like a really bad eyesore to me so there was a lot of new age kind of Odd color mismatch. No, they're they're not they're not bad. I thought the Bills were the bad part of that game. Actually, uh, I always count on the road team to kind of carry the uniform matchup in a weird way because the home team is going to be like the picture. It, it blends in with the entire surroundings, but the road team is the frame. The road team helps complete the on-field look, and the Bills just weren't delivering for me. Uh, one day, one that I did like was Miami Green Bay. It was a weird color clash, but it was one that I liked, and it was because Green Bay fit in well with the whole like teal situation going on. I like I like those Miami home teals or uh, away teals, honestly. 
Uh, my game ball kind of fits in a similar conversation to what we were just talking about. Uh, it's Detroit, Carolina. Uh, just because, like, you talk about the common denominator color. I know it's like it's a hair of a shade off. But when I'm watching in a four box on my computer, I'm not really paying attention to, like, you know, individual Pantones off of color matching. But Detroit Carolina just had their central colors blue, and outside of that, it was just white, gray, black. Carolina's wearing their all blacks. Detroit's wearing the white tops with the Honolulu pants. They're jamming out. They're doing – it was great. I know it was historically, you know – it was a total breakdown by the lines. It was a historically significant day for the Panthers. But just on, like, a textbook, like, you know, eyes glazed over football watching level, this was, like, oddly soothing. It was super nice. I liked watching it a ton. Yeah, I'm with that. I think the Panthers, uh, for as much as I've given their uniforms crap in our uniform segments, have the ability to kind of elevate the uniforms of whatever team they're playing against because it is such a unique color. It's not – truly Carolina blue, but it's definitely not teal. It's kind of right in the middle lane a little bit. Uh, and it usually ends up working for me against another team with some kind of blue in its color scheme. A couple weeks ago, I liked that Seahawks game they had in a weird way. Uh, and this week, the Lions, it worked for me. It's always kind of worked for me, especially against, I think, other NFC teams. Uh, the Panthers are just a team that I very much remember being in playoff games on Fox on my TV as a kid, usually losing, but always there. Uh, and that's uh, that's just sort of the nostalgia factor for me. So well done, Kale. Go Panthers. Ooh. Cool. Sir Purr. Sir Purr. Head scratchers. Um, this is not going to be a long head scratcher. I don't have my usual, like, step-by-step breakdown of something that went horrifically wrong but last year we had a recurring segment on this uh section of the pod it was called why are teams messing around huddling stepping on other teams logos pre-game pre-game shenanigans kale not a good look never shenanigans took a new form this week in guys not wearing shirts in single degree weather Why are guys not wearing shirts in single-digit weather? We're talking about DK Metcalf and his receiver friends from the Seattle Seahawks. And we're talking about David Njoku of the Cleveland Browns. Let us now look at the results for those two teams. Seattle Seahawks, 10 points, loss. Cleveland Browns, 10 points, loss. How many teams scored 10 points or fewer this week? Four. Not only those two, but four. Uh, and the others are the Falcons, who have Desmond Ritter for their second game, uh, and the Jets, who scored, of course, three and looked terrible doing it. So not not a fully perfect sample size, but holy cow, guys. Like, put a shirt on. Stay warm. I've, I've had a cold for two weeks. I don't recommend it. Don't get hypothermia. Don't get sick. Uh, and maybe you'll have a better chance to win football games. Put a shirt on. Uh, counterpoint, you're soft. Uh DK Metcalf actually led the team in receiving. Not hard uh, to do when Tyler Lockett's hurt. Listen, doesn't matter. Still did it. You're soft. You've never played hockey with your shirt off. Negative 10 degree weather. Shirtless underneath the pads and an outdoor ring. You've never been an offensive lineman. Required not to wear sleeves during cold games because that gives defensive linemen the opportunity to hold 
onto sleeves and get extra leverage in block shedding. Yeah, that's Linemen a competitive do it all advantage the time. thing. Defensive that's a competitive advantage thing. Time. This is intimidation. It happened. Bears and Packers do it all the time. Dumb. You just got to get a little cold callus under you, and it's not that big a deal. I honestly – Listen, I think it's absolutely dumb. <laughs> I think it's Thank a stupid you. thing, and I try and dress warm. But I also respect it and will I not know. call it a head scratcher because it makes you hard as hell. It makes you a tough guy. And I advocate nice. for fake <laughs> fake displays of toughness on a football field. Well, that's what it is, though. Time. It's fake. It's fake tough guy stuff. Same as the huddling on team's logos. It's totally fake tough guy stuff. No problem. I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all because it's every like it's not just like you're creating a fake rivalry by stomping on a logo. It is now a real thing uh, because both teams have to experience it. You're both experiencing the same weather, uh, so I respect it in a certain way. Let's hear your head scratcher. I've got nothing else for it. It'll be in the year end pot. That's crazy to be in the. That's crazy to be in the year end pot. Not for head uh, scratchers. For karma, put a shirt on, and and. Go win a football game. All right, you you sound so like you just sound like a boomer. It's like a weird old man take that you. I'm have. not a boomer. I've been sick for two weeks. I I don't think it's a good idea to go out and find the weather without a shirt on. Yeah, you're fine. Uh, my head scratcher is spiking the football. Uh, why don't why do you do it, Eagles? Uh, Eagles yeah. could have had the opportunity. To go down and win against the Cowboys. Didn't they end they, that game with a timeout in their pocket too? They did end the game with a timeout in their pocket, I believe. I don't see where they have timeouts listed for the Eagles for like active play calling. Uh, yeah, they did end with a timeout in their pocket, Jackson. Uh, but basically what happens is – No, wait, you can't. That doesn't – that's not how that works, silly. <laughs> uh, basically – Philadelphia Eagles driving down the field after Dallas takes a six-point lead. They're picking up yards with genuine consistency. They then hit a big ball to Devontae Smith for 22 yards, puts him on the Dallas 19-yard line. 33 seconds on the clock, Gardner Minshew lines up and spikes the ball. You then have... And then complete pass to Devontae Smith that takes six seconds off the clock. You then have another incomplete pass that's just a throwaway after heavy pressure by Parsons. That takes seven seconds off the clock. Now Dallas calls a timeout, and it's fourth and ten. Gardner Minshew runs for his life all over the place, trying to keep a play alive, ends up throwing incomplete downfield to A.J. Brown. If you don't spike and you just call a timeout, not only would you like you would have had more time, but let's say you hike the ball at 33 seconds and you still have, you know, a lot of time to play. If you just like if you the same outcome happens with the same time losses, you'd have at least 14 seconds of ball left to play with an extra down in your pocket. And you could try one more shot. It doesn't make sense. You don't need to spike. It also gives the Cowboys a bit of a uh bit of a break-in head-scratcher because we can do a whole thing about kicking the field goal to go up six when you're already up three. 
Uh, it basically forces a team to go for the win instead of trying to uh, – if you go for it in your own end zone and miss, most teams will probably go for the tie and play for overtime because it's guaranteed and it's a much more likely outcome. You kick a short field goal than go for the end zone. But it got the Dallas Cowboys off the hook. This playoff race is now a lot more contentious, and you missed a chance to maybe come home with an upset, Gardner. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make it more contentious if the Eagles win either of their last two games, but I see it, and, and I completely agree that was the right choice for head scratcher this week. Well, there's was- a, No, there's a genuine chance the Cowboys can win the division still. They're not totally ruled out from it. Well, the Eagles would have to lose each of their final two games and the Cowboys would have to win. But then, yes, you're correct. But I don't see the Eagles losing their I'm final I'm saying it game. puts the opposite, like, this is the week that the Eagles could have put away the division, and they, they didn't, could. so now it's open. Yeah, I don't think, you know, asking Gardner Minshew to win on the road in Dallas is a pretty big ask, and they almost did it. And this this is the right pick for head scratcher, like I said. It's almost exactly the same scenario that took the Raiders out of the playoffs last year, spiking the ball when they had time and just could have run a play. And taking you can't take away a down from yourself in these got-to-win-the-game drives. Like, it's one thing if you truly – are out of timeouts and have like, you know, maybe three more plays to get in the end zone. But when you have enough time, you can't take away a down from yourself. And they absolutely did. Okay. We've got three minutes to wrap up the show. Monday night football chargers Colts. I have nothing to say about it. Do you have anything to say about it? Uh, Chargers better win because this was their playoff scenario. Uh, They somehow had everything fall into place where the Raiders – oh, no, they did clinch, didn't they? They already clinched because they didn't need the win, right? I, I think haven't they already seen anything that says they for sure clinched. I think they, they most certainly can clinch with a win in this one, but I don't believe – Basically, they, they needed the, – oh, they no, they clinched. They, clinched. They, they, they can go eight, nine. So no, they clinched with a win. They clinched. But the ideal, playoffs, the ideal playoff scenario for clinching this week – was Raiders lost, Jets lost, Patriots lost, and Chargers win. Yes. So they've got the chance to do that and leave one seed remaining in the AFC. And I think they do that because I don't know. Well, two, Tennessee, Jacksonville. I'm talking about wild cards. But yes, yes, you're right. Two minutes, week 17 preview. It is a slate that I wish I was more excited about because – of how important everything is. But when you look at it, the Titans and Jags, their games both mean nothing because they will still play for the division week 18. You could make the argument that those two teams should rest the starters. We've got Dallas, Tennessee on Thursday. I think Dallas wins, but whatever. Uh, And then Buffalo, Cincinnati is great, but we have to wait till next Monday night for it. So we're probably going to have to do a Monday night pod instead of a Sunday night pod. Other than that, take your pick. One minute, best matchups. Uh, don't have one on the show. Like Tampa Carolina matters. That's almost for the division, but the other the, the winning team could absolutely still screw it up. Week eighteen. Uh, I'm gonna take that with a close second place of Detroit Chicago. What about you? Perfectly good choices. Uh, kind of curious about Miami, New England. It stinks, uh, but probably Teddy versus Mac. But probably not super stoked about it. Uh, Minnesota, Green Bay. 
can't go too wrong there. Uh, New York, Seattle would be my last one to throw in. As stated before, thank you all for listening. Merry belated Christmas. Happy belated every other holiday that people celebrate. I'm sure that we will have many more Christmases to celebrate as a football community together. For Kale, I am Jackson, and we will see you next Tuesday. Thank you.